0: Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to continue our series called Awe in the Book of Exodus. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to be camping out in verses 8 to 28 this morning. And and I'm really excited for this morning because we are, for the first time in this series, on the other side of this incredible moment that we've been kind of camping out in for the duration of this series, this moment where, where Moses, the leader of Israel, he comes to God and he says, God, show me your glory, and God does. God descends down and he meets with Moses face to face, he passes before Moses and he shows Moses his glory. It's this incredible moment that we've been looking at week in and week out, unpacking these phrases that God is using to describe who he is and what he's like to Moses. And and this morning we are going to come on the other side of this amazing moment and what we're going to see is that this God that we have already seen is so beautiful, has surpassing worth, has so much value, is so worthy of our praise the picture is just going to keep getting better and better on the other side of this incredible moment we've been in and so I'm going to start reading in in verse 4 to kind of give us the fullest picture of what's going on and and give maximum impact to what God wants to say to us this morning and so uh, we are in chapter 34 we pick it up in verse 4 says this so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our inequity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So on the the heels of this amazing revelation of of God, the first instinct that Moses has, his reflex response is to hit the deck in worship. He's overcome with awe at what he's just seen. He's come face to face with the living God. He's been blown away by this beauty and and the worth of this God. And his first response is to fall down in worship in response to this awesome and amazing God. And when you see Moses do that, and when you see, it's this response to a God of surpassing worth and beauty. And when you see a God like this, worship is the only response that makes sense. The only response that makes any kind of sense when you come face-to-face with this God that we are worshiping here this morning is worship. That's the only response that makes any kind of sense. Now, a few years ago, I was a youth leader, and and as a a youth leader, we would take our youth to this conference in Calgary every single year, and it was this amazing conference, and if you've been around any kind of youth conferences before, then you know that everything in that conference kind of acts as a funnel into that Saturday night worship experience, that that all the planning, all the prayer, all the events, all the classes, all the breakout sessions, everything that happens is all meant to funnel into that one moment so that youth can meet with the living God and. respond. Respond to him. And I remember on this night, this, this incredible night, like we entered into this auditorium filled with, with high school students, and there was just this buzz in that place. There was this sense of anticipation that the God who was alive was going to be there, that he was going to speak to us, that he was going to reveal himself to us, and there was just this buzz and this energy and this expectancy in that place. And, and so the band starts worshiping, and it's just this amazing experience and I'm standing way at the back of the auditorium and about three songs in my heart just starts to pound faster and faster and harder and harder and I and tears are streaming down my face and my first response is am I having a heart attack like I've never had one before but I would imagine if this was happening like my heart's racing I'm, I'm in tears my body feels strange there's this heaviness pressing down on me like i this is what I think a heart attack feels like in this emotional moment and I'm standing in the back and I'm weeping and all this is happening and it keeps getting stronger as the song goes on And, and and I all of a sudden start to realize that I wasn't having a heart attack. I was actually, it was the presence of God. That God had come so close and he was so real and he was active in my life that the gap between heaven and earth had thinned in a miraculous way and God had stepped into that space and met me there and I was being completely undone in the presence of God. And in that moment, all I could think about is, man, i got to find my brother. My brother's here. I have no idea what's going on, like how to process this, what to do. And so I just got to find him. And so I started moving to the front of the auditorium. And if you've ever seen like a a romantic comedy, then you know that when you are looking for the person that you love, you're going to do anything that you can do to get to him. And so I'm moving to the front, and I'm kind of wading through the bodies, pushing people out of my way. And all of a sudden, I see my brother at the front. And apparently God has been doing something in him because it looks like he's looking for me. And so he's wading through the people. And then our eyes lock and it was like the the, rom-com, the kind of movie started playing. And we're pushing through people and we're trying to get to each other. And there's this trail of bodies behind us. And we finally get into each other's arms and we just collapse and we start to weep just completely undone in the presence of God, completely in awe of this God who is here, who is present. And if you had asked us in that moment, what is going on? What are you experiencing? There was no words that I could give you that would ever do any kind of justice to what I was experiencing. I couldn't even explain it. But we could sing. We could worship. In response to the awesome God who had met us. And that's what we did. It was like this reflex response. We're weeping, all these people are around us, like, what is going on? And then we just turned and we, with everything we had, we worshiped the God who had met us in a powerful way. So, what we see is that worship is the only response that makes any kind of sense. To an awesome God. We see it with Moses confronted with the amazing God of the universe. The God who's actually come down to be with him and answered his request to show him his glory. Moses' first response is to worship. What else can you do in a response to a God like this? You can't do anything else. Worship then is our response to an awesome God. That's what we see in this verse. Worship is our response to to an awesome God. And this is the pattern for worship we see in the Bible, is that God reveals, we respond. God moves, we respond. God speaks, we respond. Worship is our response to an awesome God. And this is going to play itself out in the rest of our passage, is that God's going to reveal, God's going to speak, God's going to move, and he's going to invite us and call us into response but first we get another glimpse of just how great this God is in verse 10 it says this and he speaking of God and he said behold I am making a covenant before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you So after Moses pleads with God to forgive Israel for what they had done just a few chapters earlier, he's before God, he's in God's presence, he pleads, he said, God, forgive Israel, forgive this nation of people. God commits himself to Israel once again. He renews the covenant with Israel. That's how God commits himself. That's how God pledges himself to this wayward people. And it's amazing, given the fact that just a few chapters earlier, Israel had rebelled against God. They were at the base of Mount Sinai, the same uh, mountain that they are at in this text that we've been looking at. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up in the presence of God. He's been up there for a long time, and they get impatient. They're like, where is God? Where's Moses? And they they don't want to wait anymore, and so they gather all their gold, and they put together, and they fashion it, and they use fire, and all those different things, and they make a golden calf, and they begin worshiping that golden calf as the God who brought them out of Egypt. Doing the very thing that God had said not to do when he first entered into a covenant with them in Exodus 20, and saying, don't put something before me and worship it. It's the first commandment and the second commandment. Israel breaks in Exodus 32. And so even though they had given God every reason to give up on them, every reason to quit on them, what we see here is God once again entering into a binding relationship with this people, with Israel. And by doing this, God commits himself in an unbreakable way to a people who have broken their commitment to him. How good is this God? How amazing is this God that his grace will always meet our rebellion. His grace will always meet our mistakes. And again, we see that there is no God like this God because He doesn't just tell us who He is. He actually shows us who He is by how He responds to us and what we do. So, right here, what we see is that this God doesn't just tell us He's forgiving. He is actually forgiving and He forgives in real time. That He is not just telling us that He's gracious and merciful, He is those things in how He relates to us. He's not just patient. He is actually patient with us when we don't do what he says to to do or we mess up or we make a mistake. This God doesn't just tell us who he is. He actually shows us who he is and how he responds to us and what we do. See, the picture of this God that we are worshiping and we are talking about in this series just keeps getting better and better and better because in the face of all that we do, in the face of the things we don't do, the ways we fall short, the ways that we wish we could take back, God's first response to us in what we do is grace. His first response is grace. And I need that reminder, this is who God is. Because when I inevitably mess up, which I do a lot, like I'm probably going to mess up in five minutes here, it is a very helpful thing for me to not, to see God in the right way, that He is gracious, and that when I run to Him and ask for forgiveness, He is not going to condemn me. He is actually going to forgive me, and He is going to show me Grace. So that whenever I mess up, whenever I make a mistake, I don't have to run from God, I can actually run to him and know that when I ask for forgiveness, he's going to extend grace and mercy to me and give me another shot. This is God coming to Israel and doing the same thing. This is the God who is here for us, waiting and ready for you to come to him no matter what you've done and say, forgive me God, I want to live life with you and have a restart and he will give that to you because this is the God that we worship. And so God's not out to punish you or he's not out to get you. He's not waiting around in heaven with his arms crossed, frowning at you, just waiting for you to make a misstep so that he can punish you. His first response to you and what you do is always grace. And that's some good news for us this morning. Right, it's good news for me. And if that was all there was and we just said amen and we went home, that would be more than enough, wouldn't it? But God doesn't want us to just just to stay in verse 8. He wants us to actually get up out of verse 8 and with him, his presence, because he wants to go with us, God wants us to get up out of his presence and go with him out into the world to live a life of response out in the world, not just on a Sunday, not just in those moments, those little huddles that we have in our small groups, but he wants us to get up and go with him and live a life of worship out in the world. And we see this start to play itself out in verse 11. It says this. Observe what I command you this day. This is God speaking. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive up before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Okay, God. It just got real. Okay, so now I know when we hear the words obey and command that immediately we start to get Defensive because isn't Christianity supposed to be about grace and not rules? Isn't it if we start leaning towards the doing side of things, aren't we gonna tend to become legalistic and start to to make this whole thing about uh not grace but about truth and, and doing things for God? And and the answer is that if that's all you see in this, then you are actually missing the point of what is really going on here. What you what God is really doing is not just laying a whole bunch of rules at Israel's feet. God's redeeming something that was broken. See, what he's doing here is he's renewing the covenant he had made with Israel back in Exodus 20 that they broke in Exodus 32. And so first and foremost, this is an act of grace, of a gracious God coming to a rebellious people and saying, I'm going to renew something that you broke because of the choices you made. And so it's an act of grace, and God doesn't have to do this. But he does, and he has a reason for it. And so whenever we come across the commands of God in the Bible, we have to ask why he's commanding it in the first place. Because when God says to go and do something, he's not trying to lay a burden on us. He's not trying to make us do out of duty. What he's actually trying to do is give us guardrails to help us enter into the best possible version of life lived out in this world. So knowing the why behind it is so important. My oldest son, Levi, he's around just about three and a half soon, and he's going through this really existential phase right now where he wants to know the why behind everything. He wants to know the reason for everything. And so we'll tell him to do something, and his first response is, Why? Can you pick up your toys? Why? Can you put your food away? Why? Can you not hit your brother? Why? Hey, Mommy, why, do, why aren't you a boy? Or, um, Daddy, why do you have to go to work? Or, um, hey, Levi, don't hit your brother. Why? Don't, and then the other day he goes, uh, Daddy, why can't I carry knives around? You know, like, he's in this existential phase where he wants to know everything behind the, like, he wants to know the reason why he's doing everything. Don't run into the street, why? Don't put that in your mouth, why? See, for Levi, the why why matters, and no matter what we say or how we say it, he wants to know the purpose behind it because in some way he intuitively knows that there's always a reason behind what we're asking him to do. And I think we need to recapture that same posture when God comes along and says, I want you to go and do this. You need to ask why. We need to ask why because he always has a reason for what he's asking us to do. And so when God comes along and he makes this covenant, he's not trying to lay a bunch of burdens down. What we need to know is that covenant is about blessing and not burden. It's about relationship with the living God and God coming alongside of us in his grace and saying, you know what, I'm going to give you some ways to live here. But that's so that you can have guardrails that will lead you into a life of worship in the world. It's about blessings, so that you can actually have the best possible version of life. And so God is trying to guide his people into flourishing here in this moment. And so he's not just laying down rules. He's actually laying down a way of life. He doesn't just show us grace, this God. He actually shows us a way to live, to be, to think, to relate to the world around us so that we can have something better than the other alternatives that are out there. And this is why God comes so strong in verses 12 to 16 with that warning about the environment Israel is about to enter. See, God is in the process of leading Israel into the land that he's promised them. And in that land, he knows that Israel, who has a track record of doing this, is that they're going to rub shoulders With people who have different worship styles different systems of thought different ideas of what the world is supposed to be and who humans are and how they relate to the gods and so what god is doing in grace he's coming alongside and he's like watch out you're about to enter into a place that is against that has a whole different way of life than the one i'm trying to lead you into and so you need to be careful you need to be really careful, Israel. He's really like, you've shown you haven't done it before. I'm showing you grace, and I'm again showing you a way to have flourishing in the middle of all the competing ideologies and worshiping other gods that are out there. And he says, if you're not careful, you're going to be influenced over time by the people around you and their ways of thinking, and when that happens, you'll start whoring after other gods. i need to sit in that picture for a second. I thought, seriously, God takes this, and if God takes it that seriously, then we should take it as serious as he does. See, what God is saying is that when we fail to follow his commands and put them into practice in our lives, it's only a matter of time until we put something into the place that only God is meant to occupy, and we ask that thing to give us what only God can give us. He's saying that we are going to be prone if we're not trying to live for God and be in His presence and then go with Him and live the life He's calling us to live. If we are going to be prone to attach ourselves to something or someone other than God and look to that to give us what only God could give. And if we do that, God says it's only a matter of time until you start prostituting yourself out to that thing. It's only a matter of time until you start prostituting yourself out to that. So that stings. That stings. I don't like to think about my life this way. I don't like to think that there are things in my life that I am prostituting myself out to. But that's how serious God takes this, and, and some of us, we hear that and we immediately think, mm not me. I love Jesus. I would never do that. There's no way. He, Jesus is my one and all. He's my identity and intellectually that's true. But let's hold on a second because this is a lot more subtle than we think. Tim Keller describes what this looks like in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and he says this, an idol, which is what we're talking about, is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. So what he's saying is that it doesn't have to be the big bad things that we come to mind. It might be climbing the corporate ladder for you. It might be having the biggest, most beautiful home on the block. It might be wanting to be perceived as the good Christian person who has it all together, who never struggles and, 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 and has the great, well-behaved kids. It might be um, other people's approval. That's the one I struggle with. I want you to like me. So preaching about prostitution and whoring is not the way to make that happen. But anyway, I'm going for it because that's in the text. Money, power, prestige, your appearance, being the in crowd at school or work, getting your identity from what you do or what you have, your marriage, your relationship, that person, a theological system, a political system, a way of living in this world. Whatever that thing is in your life, the moment you look to that to give you what only God can give, God says you are prostituting yourself out to that thing. And he loves you too much to let you get away with that. He loves you too much to let you go without a warning To let you live that way. He says that you can make a covenant with this or you can make a covenant with me. Which will it be? So yes, he comes strong at us. But he does it because he loves you. He wants the best for you. He wants the best possible life for you in this world. And so naturally, God's going to warn us because he loves us. But then he's also going to show us what that could possibly look like. And in in verses 18 to 26, God comes along and he says, you shall keep the feasts. You know what he's saying is you need to mark out time in the middle of your busy lives to have moments where you stop and you remember who I am and what I've done for you in the past. You need to set these things up and have a regular rhythm of them in your calendar. You need to set up a day of sabbath, God says. So countercultural, but he's like, you know what? You got to work 6 days and then you got to set aside one day a week where you just rest and you cease from working and you be with God and you do what brings you joy and delight, you play and you let God run the universe. He has different things about uh, animals and how you bring them to sacrifice, bringing your first fruits in worship. He's, he's teaching them about how they are to worship in that context, in that season, in that time in redemptive history. He's giving us instructions about all these things because he's directing Israel to worship in the world, to be a worshiping people in the world, in the middle of all the competing things that are vying for their attention, vying for their allegiance, wanting to, to grab their worship and become ultimate in their life. See, so what God is trying to do is he's trying to teach Israel, and I think us, that worship is more than an event, it's a way of life. It's an all-of-life thing It's an all of like thing. You worship when you are at work on a Tuesday afternoon. You worship when it's Friday afternoon and all you want to do is just mail it in and you don't want to finish the day strong. You worship when you're with your family. You worship when you're alone on your computer. You worship when you're at school. You worship when you're here. You worship in every single moment of every single day because you are a worshiping being living your life in response to an awesome God in the world. This is the, the worldview that, that God has, as the Bible paints for us. All of life is one big response to an awesome God who is gracious enough to show us a way to be and live and act and think and relate in this world on top of everything else he has done for us. That flips what God is doing here on its head, doesn't it? Because no longer is it about us doing for God, it's about us responding to God and who he's revealed himself to be, and then also what he's revealed is the best way to live your life in this world. So no longer is it about duty and just following commands, it's actually about seeing God for who he is and being, wow, you're amazing, you're that good, and responding to him because he's worth responding to. That's what we're seeing, it flips it on the head. And when we start seeing it like that, then our view of worship starts to grow and change. It's not just an event anymore. It's about a way of life. It's about who we are and how we respond to God. Is this how you see worship? Is this what you think of when you hear the words worship? Is that how you see your life being lived in this world? As one big response to an awesome God. Who is so good and so awesome that he's worth giving up everything for and living your life for him. Not just on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and Friday and Saturday. And if it isn't, then we need to shift gears. When I was learning how to drive standard, it was a really rough experience for my dad. Um, he got a little truck, and how he taught me was he would take me up to the local college and this huge, huge parking lot, not much unlike our parking lot, And we would spend hours, just me and my dad, in this little blue Nissan truck and he would sit in the passenger seat and jerk back and forth as I tried to figure out how to shift gears smoothly. It was painful. I was so embarrassed, I was glad that it was the weekend and no one was around because I stalled that thing more than I actually shifted gears at the beginning. It just was over and over and my poor dad just sat there and took it and took it and it took time and time again for us going up there and and me shifting gears and me clunking it and, and stalling out for me to finally get it. And it only took minor whiplash to get there but it was worth it in the end. And we eventually got to a place where I can actually drive a standard car shifting gears smoothly. But when you drive a standard, shifting gears has to happen if you want the car to run at optimum level, doesn't it? That's the way it works. I'm not a, a gearhead or anything, but if you want to go faster, shift gears. If you want to experience more power, shift gears. If you want to have the best optimal uh, experience in your car, if you want your car to run the best possible way, then you shift gears in a way that, that works. And, and some of us need to shift gears in our life with Jesus, in our view of worship, We've been in first or second gear for far too long and we've become okay with it. Some of us have never even gotten out of neutral. We need to pop that thing into first gear and get going. See, we need to shift gears if we want our life toward the next level with Jesus, if we want to actually start to apprehend this life that God has saved us into, which is a life lived in response to Him in the world, not just today, but in the world. We don't do that out of duty, but we do that out of delight. And that's the key. We don't do this because we want to please God. We don't, want to, we don't do it because we want to earn anything. He's already given us everything in Jesus. So we don't do this out of duty. We actually do this out of delight in the God that we're here to worship. And you get delight when you spend time in his presence. And just being with him and asking him to show you his glory. And as he responds and he shows you his glory, you find a delight that you never thought you would find before. And then all of a sudden it just starts spilling out for you. And you want to actually live for him. You want to say yes to him even though it's hard, even though it's not what your initial response is. You want to do that. And so if you want to respond to God in the way we've been talking about this morning, then you need to shift gears. And the way that happens is you start seeing that our response always begins with God's response to us. Our response to God always begins with God's response to us. See, the call to obey in the Bible is always grounded in the past acts of God, in what He's done. It always starts with God. It always starts with what He has done. Everything we do, every response we have, is always a response to what He has already done. He's always first, and that's our starting place. And we see this in our passages that before God gives any commands, what does he do? He shows grace to Israel. He forgives them. It's his grace that lays the groundwork for his commands. It's his grace that is meant to be the catalyst for our response, the catalyst for our actions. Do you see it? His grace is meant to motivate us into a life lived for him. And that's the difference between religion and the gospel empowered way of life. See, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Is that if I do a lot of good things, if I keep the commands, if I obey God, if I don't do this and I don't do that, and I I structure my life a certain way and I never fall short and I do this, then God's going to love me and accept me and he's going to bless me. That's religion. And the gospel takes that around and says, you know what, God's already done everything that's ever needed to be done. You are more loved and accepted right now in this moment than you ever have been and ever could be. You can't change that. You are loved and you are accepted and because of that, you obey. You live for God. And I don't know about you, but I want the gospel way of life. I don't want to have to try to earn something because I'm miserable at earning what God has already accomplished for me. And so our response to God always begins with his response to us. And we've seen in this passage this morning that he has a response to human rebellion. He has a response to our mistakes, and that's forgiveness and redemption. And when we see how God has responded to us and what that means for us, it motivates us to respond to him, to want to live this life that he's guiding us into. So these guardrails are good, they're for our flourishing. So I love any C.S. Lewis fans in the house? I love C.S. Lewis. Author of Chronicles of Narnia, apologist. He's like, he wrote the screw tape letters and the weight of glory and mere Christianity. I mean, the guy has accolades and he's so well known. And I just finished reading, I think, the third biography about him that I I, I just love reading about his life. And they asked in this biography, his friends, the people closest to him that knew him the most, they said, what's one thing that stands about stands out to you about C.S. Lewis? And his friends said this about C.S. Lewis. They said, it was his willingness to be enchanted that stood out the most by And what he means by enchanted is it was Lewis's ability to be awestruck by everything. To be overwhelmed by God, by life, by the sound of a kid laughing, by by a beautiful sunset, by a tree, by the, the camaraderie around a fire and the laughter that comes there. It was like Lewis was most known to his best friends as someone who was willing to be awestruck to be totally blown away by life, and most importantly in his relationship with God. And I think that if we want to become a people who have this view of worship, then we need to find that posture in ourselves once again and be willing to be awestruck by this God we have been speaking about in this series. And for you, that might mean that you're here and you're checking out Jesus and you're like, man, I don't even know what I believe to be true about this this God, but would you be willing to be enthralled with him would you be willing to keep coming back and would you be willing to keep listening and and asking god to show you himself and and we believe that he will do that in his way in his will and in his timing and will you be ready to be awestruck at him when he shows himself to you and would you be willing to respond to him and enter into a life of relationship with him or maybe you're here and you've, you know the Christian song and dance, you've sang the songs, you've lived the life, you, you know the routine. May, are you willing to be awestruck by God again? Are you willing to be enchanted by the beauty and the wonder of who he is? Are you willing to recapture our ability to be awestruck by God? And so how does that happen? Well, it happens... In several ways. They're not all, all the ways, but from the text and through prayer, God says we need to eliminate hurry. See, if you if you look at this passage, at the end of this passage, it actually says that Moses is with God for 40 days and 40 nights. He's in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I'm not saying that you need to, to, to clear your schedules and go home and quit your job and just spend 40 days and the next 40 nights in the presence of God, neither eating or or drinking like Moses did, but what I am saying is that we need to rethink our priorities and we need to slow down enough to be in the presence of God. Hurry is one of the modern things that is the biggest obstacle to us actually getting awestruck by God. And so are you willing to slow down to be with God? Are you willing to make that a priority? Are you willing to 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 organize your schedule, your life? around meeting with this God, and make that your starting point, not a a thing you squeeze in at the end of your day. So you need to eliminate hurry, and then you need to expand your vision of who God is. And so these two things go close, they they work together, is that the more you eliminate hurry, the more time you have to spend with God. And the bigger your view of God, the bigger your response to him is going to be. So what we need to do what 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 Moses does is we actually need to come into the presence of God and say, you know what, God, show me your glory. I don't have enough of it. I haven't seen enough of it. I've actually gotten cold and numb because I haven't experienced it lately. Show me your glory. I want to see your beauty. And you know what, God is going to do that in his way. And he's going to expand your vision of who he is. And I hope in this series you realize that that's been our entire goal. Our entire goal has, has been to put a God before you that when you stack up everything in the universe, past, present, and future, all the good, all the beautiful, all the wonderful and awesome things in all of history, that this God still comes out on top. This God is still better than anything or anyone in all of history that you will ever find or ever could want. And when you get in his presence and you ask him to show you his glory, and he does, it will change you. You can't stay the same and be in the presence of God in this way. So eliminate hurry, expand your vision of who God is, and then finally cultivate response. See, we need to learn to be really good at saying yes to God. And maybe as I've studied and prepared this, I think that's one thing I take away is that I want my yes to God to be a reflex. Dave, you do this. Yes, God. Dave, can you do this? Yes, God. I want that to be the posture of my life. And so what is your yes to God that he is asking you to make today? What's that next step of response to who he is and what he's revealing to you? Because when your yes becomes your reflex response, you're going to start to live in a way with God that leads to flourishing in the world, and you're starting to have this beautiful life of worship that you can't have unless you start here with God. You may be wondering can I actually live this way? Is it really possible? Can I actually do this given in the world we live in and with all the stuff coming at me, all the distractions and hurry? And the answer is yes, you can because in Exodus, God gives himself and his covenant to Israel to show them a way to live and be in the world. How much more is it possible for us on the other side of the cross and with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, a present power, giving us what we need in order to live this way? The answer is our yes is more possible than Israel's ever was because of the presence of God living inside of us. And so where you can't, God can. He's made a way. See, God is so good that he doesn't just show us grace. He shows us a way to live. And he gives us what we need to actually go and live that life. Who else is like this God? There's no God like this. God, I thank you for who you've revealed yourself to be, that you're not some God who is distant and haven't shared your, yourself with us, but you are a God who has come near. You are a God who has revealed himself here in this passage, but most ultimately in the person of Jesus. And then when we look to him, we can see a God who is far better than we could ever imagine, but who is here and is willing to share himself with us and who is on everything that's possible to make it happen that we can actually live in your presence and live a life of worship. And so I pray for myself, I pray for us, that we would become a people who long for you, God, and our yes to you is a reflex response because you're worth it, God. You're an awesome God. And so lead us to be people who see worship in the way you do, to see it as an all-of-life response to an awesome God. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to do that and meet us where we're at and lead us to take that next step, to cultivate response here and now. God, thank you for this, in Jesus' name.